Isaiah 44, starting at verse 12. The prophet writes, The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures a line and marks an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in the form of a man, of a man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or an oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest or planted a pine and the rain made it grow. It is man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest, he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me. You are my god. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see. And their minds are closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or even say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Remember these things, O Jacob, for you are my servant, O Israel. I have made you. You are my servant. O Israel, I will not forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, your sins like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Sing for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done this. Shout aloud, O earth beneath. Burst into song, you mountains, you forests, and all you trees. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob. He displays his glory in Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sisters and brothers in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we wander through the Bible this summer looking at stories of trees, we've been focusing in many ways on what trees symbolize in the Bible, what they mean in the imagination of, ancient, of the ancient Near East. And we've seen in these sermons that we've been hearing on trees that trees are places of power, 
places are of divine revelation, places of pagan worship even, places where people rest, eat, pray, and learn. We've seen how trees symbolize life and knowledge, how they symbolize divine power, how they symbolize productivity and fertility and blessing and fruitfulness. But our passage today reminds us of a very basic truth about trees. That trees produce wood. And human beings use wood to create all sorts of things. We use wood to build houses, to fuel engines, to cook food, to make tools, buildings, and art. We use wood to create. And this drive to create is fundamental to human nature. This drive to create comes from the way that God made us. In Genesis 1, at the very beginning of the Bible, God gives what we call the cultural mandate. God created humankind in his own image, in the image of God. He created it male and female. He created them. And God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. This cultural mandate which God gives to humanity at the very beginning of creation is a divine command to fill the earth and subdue it. But subdue seems kind of like a harsh word, doesn't it? So I think it's helpful for us to get a little bit of a better understanding of what God means when he tells Adam and Eve to subdue the earth. And what the church has long taught is that when God tells Adam and Eve to subdue the earth, he is calling them in many ways to continue the work of creation, the work of creating. God has created all things in heaven and earth. He has made light in the darkness. He has made order in the chaos. He has made a garden in the wilderness. And he calls the crown of his creation, the pinnacle of his creatures, to continue that work. To order the chaos. To light the darkness. To plant in the wilderness. The author of The Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, was very inspired by God's words to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1. And he wrote frequently, about how human beings are sub-creators. We take the material of the creation that God has made and we spin it out into all sorts of incredible things. Humanity is like a prism that refracts the white light of God to reveal the many colors contained within it. And this pleases God. God is pleased with our creation. God is pleased with our landscaping and our carpentry, with our storytelling and our painting, with our accounting, with our farming, with our music. God has given humanity a unique gift, unique among all the creatures that he's made, that we are able to take the things that God has created and we are able to create with them. And we are able to create incredible things. I was talking with a friend the other day about how amazing blue cheese is. 
And this is just an example, but bear with me. I know not everybody likes blue cheese, but bear with me. Because when you think about it, like the track that humanity has to take to go from God's creation to blue cheese is incredible. It's incredible. I mean, blue cheese might not seem all that incredible. It's like $5 at Fresco. But think of the variety of daring and genius choices that people had to make so that we can all eat blue cheese today. So first thing is that many thousands of years ago, someone is out uh, picking berries or something, I don't know, and they see an ox and they tell their friends like, you know what, we should, we should eat that ox. We should eat it. And then like a thousand years later, someone is out hunting oxen and they tell their friends like, you know what, this would be a lot easier if we like fed the oxen and just like made them our pets. And then sometime later, someone says, you know what we should try? We should try drinking the milk that the baby oxen drink. We should try that. We should try doing that. And then someone had to be like, you know how when we leave milk outside in the sun for a long time and it gets all like chunky and gross? We should eat that. <laughs> and then someone had to say, you know how when we leave cheese in storage for too long and it gets all moldy and turns blue? We should eat that. <laughs> and now we have blue cheese. <laughs> Thanks be to God. It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, blue cheese, blue cheese might seem like a silly example, maybe. But humanity really has created some incredible things. We have space shuttles, we have gel pens, we have the Mona Lisa, skyscrapers, the internet, microwaves, ice cream. It's pretty amazing what we're capable of. It's pretty incredible that God has given us this gift. But what this passage from Isaiah invites us to remember is why why we create, why we're called to subdue the earth, why we're called to bring order to chaos, why we're called to create. Because obviously the artisans in this parable from Isaiah, the blacksmith and the carpenter, they're all about their craft. They're all about creating. They give it their all. They go without drink and without food. They grow hungry and faint, working so hard on their craft, forming and shaping and molding and creating what is probably in all reality a beautiful piece of art. But then they go and they worship the thing that they have made. They say, this is my God. With half the wood, a man cooks his food, and with the other half, he carves an idol. And thanks that half of the wood for his food, for his warmth, for his home. And it seems so silly, it seems so backward, but the warning that Isaiah is giving to us is that it is very easy for us to get caught in the trap of idolatry. 
Isaiah invites us to ask why we are doing what we are doing. Where is our work leading us? Where is our work pointing? Does our work point to God? Or does it point somewhere else? All things in heaven and on earth are created for one purpose. Just one. Ultimately, all things are created for the glory of God. All things are created to bring God glory. In the Hebrew, the word for glory is chavod. Everybody say chavod. Good job. Chavod at its root means uh, something along the lines of like weight or heaviness. And the idea in the Hebrew is that when we properly give glory to God, we are making God heavy. We are making God big. We're making ourselves small. And this is why, like you think of the imagery, this is why bowing is so important in Hebrew worship in the Old Testament. Because bowing is a way of making myself small to make someone else big. I make myself small so that God is big, God is heavy, God is chavod. That's what it means to bring glory to God. We make ourselves small so that God is big. But the craftsman in our story makes God small. Not because he doesn't bow down, but because he literally makes a small God. He makes a little idol and he says, this is God. And he bows down to it, but it doesn't matter because it's, it's a tiny little piece of wood that he can hold in his right hand. It's a tiny little idol. And the problem with it is that this image, this statue that he makes can never reflect the true character of God because God is a living God who sees and hears and speaks and acts in this world. And the idol can't do any of those things. It can't do any of those things. And so what the craftsman does in this passage is gives us a false picture of God that leads us away from God, that points us away from the true God. And that's the question that Isaiah invites us to ask of ourselves in this passage about the things that we make about the things that we do. Do the things that we create make God big? Do the things that we do point to God? Do they give God weight, importance, respect? Or do they point to something else? What direction are we headed? The Christian church has had different ways of talking about this throughout history. The early church uses the language of the way of life and the way of death, the way of light and the way of darkness. A few decades ago, you might have heard pastors preach about worldliness. More recently, we probably hear more often about the dangers of secularism or something along those lines. But all of these are basically different ways of preaching about the danger of idolatry. The danger of idolatry. 
The basic question that Isaiah invites us to ask is this. Does our work point us upward to Christ, seated at the right hand of God? Or does our work point us downward? In other words, does what we do transform us into the image of Christ? Or does it conform us more and more to the patterns of this world? In the Reformed tradition, we don't believe in such a thing as neutral work. It's not like, well, my work isn't really harming anyone, so it can't be that bad. We believe that everything in this creation, everything in our lives, either leads us toward God or away from him, either points us to God or distracts us from him. We believe that God has endowed human work with a dignity and an importance. When we grow crops, we are participating with God in the work of creation. When we fill out our tax forms and balance books, we are participating with God to create order out of chaos, because I don't know how you guys do that. When we teach, we are participating in God's work of shining light in the darkness. But there is a fine line between working alongside God and working instead of God. When we put our trust in our own work alongside of God or instead of God, we make God small. We create a false God. We allow our work to lead us away from God. And I wonder about these things sometimes, about the kinds of things that we do that make God small, the kinds of things we create that point us away from God. And it reminds me in everything that I do to always be vigilant about my motivation, to always be vigilant about the direction that this is setting me on. And this question becomes even more important as our church grows in wealth. What is our trajectory? Having a boat is not a sin. But does having a boat point you toward God or away? Buying a bigger house is not a sin. But does buying a bigger house point you toward God or away from Him? What about the side effects of our actions? Using plastic is not a sin. But does using something once and then throwing it away point us toward God or away from him? Does an island of plastic waste in the Pacific Ocean bring God glory? Or does it demonstrate that we have bought into an idolatry of convenience? Are we creating things that point toward God or away from him. When we use the stuff of creation, we don't use it neutrally. We either use it for God's glory or against. When we use things for God's glory, we participate with him in the work of creation, which is an incredible thing. We are sub-creators with God. 
But when we don't use things for God's glory, we're like the craftsmen in this parable from Isaiah, creating false gods that have no life in them, that lead only to death and destruction. Gods that cannot save us. But the end of our passage today holds out this incredible hope for all of us. Isaiah calls us all to repent of the ways in which we have manufactured lies, the ways in which we have misused the creation. Not only to repent, but to remember. Remember these things, O Israel. Remember that you are my servant. Remember that I created you. Remember that I will never forget you. I have swept away your offenses like a cloud, like the morning mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. God portrays this work of redemption as already having been done. Because it has already been done. In the person of Jesus Christ, God came down to earth so that we might be lifted up to him. The Son of God descended so that we might ascend. The Messiah went down to death so that we might be raised with him. And out of this reality, out of this already true reality that God has already accomplished in Jesus Christ, we are invited to live into the redemption which God has already secured over our lives. To participate with God not only in the work of creation, but in the work of new creation. Knowing full well that we can't achieve this work through our own effort, but privileged and honored that God allows us to work alongside him in this world. And the way the prophet paints this picture at the end of this passage is incredible. God invites us to participate in the work of creation and all creation sings for joy because of the mighty acts of God. The creation which humankind has both used and misused, stewarded and abused, filled and stripped, cared for and destroyed. The creation which Paul says groans with labor pains waiting for the redemption of God's chosen ones. All creation sings for joy. The heavens above and the earth beneath, the mountains and the forests and the trees, because the Lord has redeemed his people and his glory, his glory, his glory is known through all the earth. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Oh, Lord, our God, we are honored and humbled at the gift that you give us as human beings, that we may create alongside of you. We thank you that you have filled us with imagination and wonder, with creativity and with skill. 
And we pray, O Lord our God, that we may always create, act, and do what leads to your glory and yours alone. Guide us by your Holy Spirit so that in all things we may work your will and so that on that day when you come again we may stand before you and hear the words well done good and faithful servant bless us O Lord we pray that we may bless you in the name of Jesus Christ your son